Well, good morning again. This morning we are going to carry on with a series of messages from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Um, Before I start, I'd like to just ask God for his blessing on his word. Father, your word is powerful and true and beautiful. And so this moment we... We rest in the promise that you will make it be fruitful. That your word will go out and it will bear fruit in the lives of your people. Lord, whatever I say that's true and good, let it be heard. Whatever I say that is an error, let it be ignored. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So... Uh, Before I start, it must be said again that this passage in Ephesians chapter 5 cannot be understood without the context of the prior four chapters. And the line of argument in chapter 5 closely follows the line that starts in chapter 4, as you'll see. But all of chapters 4, 5, and 6 depend on what has come before in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So I'm going to give you the one-sentence summary of each of the first three chapters of Ephesians here. Uh, One sentence per chapter. Ephesians 1 tells us that we are beloved by God, chosen by God for blessing and adoption and a glorious inheritance and abundant grace. Ephesians 2 shows how we are made alive in Christ, saved by grace through faith, not by works. And that God has good things planned, work for us to do. We are his workmanship. And Ephesians 3 promises that God will work out these good plans in us together as his church, Jew and Gentile, united as one body, and that through faith we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And it ends with this great prayer from Paul for God to strengthen us and fill us with the fullness of his life. So then chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this book shift focus sharply. How then should Christians live distinctively in response to our reconciliation with God and with one another? And this question brings us to what can be an intimidating concept and a big $5 word, sanctification. Okay? I submit that this passage and the whole of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are fundamentally about sanctification. The process of turning away from sin and becoming more like Jesus in holiness and in love. Sanctification is that process by which we, by the grace of God in us and the power of God in us, learn to obey the law of God, especially as it's revealed by Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't use the word sanctify in this passage, but he comes very close at the end of chapter 4, verse 24, when he instructs the Ephesians to Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When we talk about sanctification, we're talking about a standard, a moral standard. And you can just think about the Ten Commandments and then the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount on true inner righteousness. So Paul writes about 
this kind of life that Christians ought to live in response to God's love. In the very first verse of chapter 4, when he starts this new argument, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, some of you may have versions that translate the word, uh, the Greek word walk rather than live. It's, it's, uh, they're the same concept, right? It's the same idea. It refers to how we conduct our life. And beginning in that chapter 4, we have five incidences of this idea of how we should live. We have 4.1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 4.17, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, live a life of love, imitating the love of God. Chapter 5, verse 8, live as children of light, rejecting the darkness. Chapter 5, verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So with all that background, hear the word of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 20. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. That's why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to, go to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So when we read this passage, and all of chapter 4 where this starts, we hear the Apostle Paul's uncompromising rejection 
of a life characterized by sin. That seems loud and clear, right? So my question for you is, how do you feel when you hear this, when you read this text? Or other passages like it? It seems to me that there are two directions, two general directions most people go in response to this. And I'll speak of them kind of colloquial terms as the religious right and the religious left, okay? On the religious right, you have people who want to honor God's law, and on the religious left, you have people who want to diminish the authority of God's law. So on the left, some choose to either ignore the law, and others choose to diminish it, or reframe it, or cut the significance of it somehow. So we live in a post-Christian secular society, largely, I would argue. And there are some alternative spiritualities that are very much like that post-Christian society that have elevated the pursuit of pleasure or of unrestrained, self-serving, self-seeking activity, whether sexual activity or accumulation of money or power or experiences, travel or shopping or recreation or eating and drinking, whatever it is. These are the things that Paul equates with darkness and corruption and sensuality and impurity and idolatry because God is not at the center of it. And for these, the people in this, this camp, the law of God is simply irrelevant. Right? There's no need to respect the call for sanctification from the apostlehood. The second option on the, on the, the left, I'm going to use my left because otherwise it's going to be a big mess up here. The second option on the religious left is a form of Christian teaching which bends toward the society and says, what we want is Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Today it's widely taught that merely profession of faith, merely praying a prayer, Merely saying the right words is enough to save one from God's wrath against sin. My sins are forgiven. I've said the prayer. So no matter what I do, I can live as I wish. I needn't really consider God's law. That's what grace is for, to cover that. Now, I need to say here that it is true that we are saved by grace through faith alone not by works. Saving faith, however, is always accompanied by action. It's always accompanied by God's grace for sanctification. And there is no salvation in Jesus that rejects him as Lord. Trusting Jesus means following him and believing him as Savior and as Lord. So those are the two options on the left. On the right, where the law isn't going to be ignored or isn't going to be diminished, you also have a couple of options, I think. You have the legalistic response, which is a legalistic attempt to obey the law as carefully as possible. And then you have the group that says, I'm discouraged and I'm despairing about my inability to obey the law. So the sincere legalist believes he or she becomes a good Christian by working really hard at obedient living. 
And his or her self-image is tied up closely in the sense of righteousness that comes from that. They focus relentlessly on this righteous living in order to feel good about themselves and their standing before God. So the Pharisees of Jesus' day are an example of this, right? They're upright, respectable, wholesome people, but sometimes they can be very blind to their own failings because it's hard to look at our failings, right? That's a hard thing to look honestly at our sin and our failures. By contrast, you have other sincere religious people who are utterly discouraged or despondent by the teaching on sanctification because they see the standard set forth in Scripture and say, I can't measure up, right? The teaching from Paul here in Ephesians in 4, 5, and 6 is, it's heavy. It's like an impossible weight, an impossible standard. I can't do these things and be this the way it sounds like I'm supposed to be. And honestly, when I read this passage or the Sermon on the Mount or other sections of the Bible that teach on moral standards, I often feel like I'm not measuring up. I think that's a pretty common response. I, I did a little poll and I tested a few people and they, they felt the same way. So let me give you an image for this problem. This summer, my son Ben and his friend Josh worked for me at our little camp property up in the mountains. And one weekend, we captured a spring on our property. So we literally dug into the hillside, uh, laid some gravel down and a collection system and covered it back up. And then we added a spring box and an outflow tube. And we are getting a tremendous flow of cold, clean spring water far more than we need. Now, I have a number of five-gallon buckets that I use up there, and some of these are pretty beat up now. And I discovered that some of those buckets don't actually hold water very well anymore. They have some leaky buckets. And I think that's an image for my life. I think I'm like a leaky bucket. So I want to carry all the water I can carry. The purpose of a bucket is to hold and transport water from one place to another for that bucket carrier's purpose, right? When the spring water represents the power and the life of God flowing endlessly from this spring, right? The bucket represents my life, but the holes in the bucket or the cracks in the bucket represent the sin and the brokenness and... Yeah, the wreck of a life that that I have. And when I get filled up with some water and I'm leaking it everywhere and it's, you know, falling out on the ground everywhere, I think that's an image of, of how disrespectful it is to God when we sin. God's purpose is for me to carry this water from one place to where he wants to put it. And I'm letting out, I'm leaking out the life of God. Now, that can sound like a good thing, but in this analogy, it's not. All right? I'm, I'm leaking out the life of God, wasting, in some ways, what God's giving me through the holes and the cracks and everything else. Unless it gets to the destination where the bucket carrier intended it to go, if it's leaking out on the ground. Now, if you're not a Christian... 
and you don't have any regard for the life of God, you don't care if you're not filled up with water, right? You might want to get filled up with other things. You might want to get filled up with the dirt. You might want to be filled up with mud. Um, that's maybe what Paul's referring to, right, in Ephesians 4 when he's talking about sensuality and impurity and idolatry. And if you only want Jesus as Savior, then you want to just barely dip your bucket in the, in the flow and just get a little bit of it and kind of rinse it out and try to make it look clean, just enough to get some water in the bottom there, cover the bottom with water. And if you're a legalist, you're sitting off to the side trying to get your holes fixed, right? You've got to patch these holes and I've got to get some flex seal on there and whatever so that I can hold water. Then God will be pleased with me. Then I can get under the spring again, right? And if you're despairing of your sin and the holes in your bucket, you might also be sitting off to the side, trying not to be noticed, discouraged, tired of leaking, sometimes crippled by shame. Now, I'd say if that's you, if that, that last one's you, you're probably closest to the right spot, to where you need to be. Because you only need one more thing to make that work. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel tells you that the living God has set his love on you and chosen you and redeemed you and has good plans for you. Put your trust in Jesus for all of life and then live a life appropriate to that calling. Obedience to the moral law comes from our efforts that are inspired by gratitude and empowerment by the Holy Spirit. God is saying to you, brace yourself. There's a lot of water where this is coming from. And more than enough to fill you and put you to work, even with your holes and cracks as you are now. And as we walk along, as we bless others with this water, right, as we keep filling you up, we're going to work on fixing those holes, right? But I'm still going to use you as you are, you leaky bucket. And we'll work on the, we'll work on the repair. But there's plenty of water. This water comes in so fast, you can't leak out faster than it comes in. Over time, your bucket will become even more useful to me because we'll fix those holes. See, our relationship to the moral law changes after we understand and we personally experience the truth of the gospel. The law no longer defines the terms of our relationship with God, but it still continues to guide the way of the good life with God, to guide us into that way of the good life with God. So there's a Puritan writer named Walter Marshall who wrote something called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. And they had really long titles for their book chapters back then. Chapter 9 is titled, We must first receive the comforts of the gospel that we may be able to sincerely perform the duties of the law. So you and I need the comforts of the gospel in order to fulfill the law. The gospel is not something we outgrow after we first trust Jesus. We need the gospel every day for life.
So this is the comfort of the good news. You are loved by God. Leaky bucket that you are, not because of how well you carry water, but because of who he is. Forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, and a purposeful life in God's kingdom are freely available to all who will trust Jesus. Now this kind of life, this kind of comfort, leads me at least, and should lead us all to gratitude. Twice in this passage, verse 4 and verse 20, Paul pleads for Christians to have a heart characterized by thanksgiving. And I'll go so far as to say that gratitude, born from the comforts of the gospel, is the key to successfully living into sanctification. Gratitude is the engine that moves our bucket again and again back under the flow of that spring water. So you can reread the text from this morning in that light and start discovering that it's only when we're filling up with the living water do we have the kind of God power in us that enables us to become the people who imitate God's kindness and God's compassion and who live a life of love and self-sacrifice that's called for in verses 1 and 2. We no longer need to exploit others sexually or financially to get what we need. We're filling up with the living water. Only when the comfort of the gospel leads us to gratitude do we live as children of light, turning away from the sin and darkness and living into the goodness and the righteousness and the truth that comes with the light. And we have to remember here that we can't just, by force of will, turn from sin and become holy by direct effort, just trying harder. Okay? We're doing this by the power of God, the power of the living water in us. But we have to also remember that effort is required. God is not opposed to effort, only to earning. God desires our effort. But the biggest part of our effort is just to get ourselves under the flow, under the spring, so we can receive that life-giving water from the giver. So Tim Keller, Timothy Keller, tells a story of a woman who came to one of his talks one time and didn't yet have faith. And she asked him, well, how could it be that she'd never heard that people were saved by grace through faith alone? And he didn't know how to answer her, so he said, well, what do you think? And she said, well, if you're saved in part by what you do, then God can only ask so much of you. You're like a taxpayer. You know, you kind of pay taxes for things that the government delivers that you can't deliver by yourself. But if you're saved by grace, entirely on the basis of what Jesus does, there's no limit to what God can ask of you. And that is the truth of the gospel. We are saved by grace, entirely on the basis of what Jesus does. And we do owe everything to Jesus. And he does ask for unrestricted obedience. Now there's a, an irony here also about that debt. Because sometimes when we say we owe everything to Jesus, 
we risk falling into what's called a debtor's ethic that says, although we're completely incapable of ever repaying this debt to God, there is sort of an implicit, often self-imposed demand that we keep working at repaying that debt. And as a result, our good deeds and our worship serve sort of as interest-only payments on a debt that can never decrease. And we tend to obey from obligation, perhaps, more than from delight. And my counter to that is that people who truly believe God, who again and again position their bucket under that spring flow, so it's just pouring in, these are the people who go further and further into debt all the time. And they consume God's grace faster and more completely every passing year that they live with God. Right? They're burning grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. Right? Because they're living on grace. They're not living on their own stuff. And if all the good we do is by grace, then we're always going further and further and deeper and deeper into debt. But God's not a lender. God's a giver. He's delighted to give grace. Nothing delights him more than children who receive with open hands and open hearts the grace that he wants to give. All we need to do is be delighted to receive it. So we don't ever obey with an intent to square up accounts with God. Never. We repent from sin. We work to obey the law as God gives us grace to do that because that's the kind of fitting life for children of God. And because we find joy in the beauty of his love and in the goodness of his promises. And because we find comfort in the gospel. And because we're grateful to belong to him. Pray with me, will you? Our Father, we are grateful to be yours, to belong to you. We have done nothing to deserve it, but we receive and delight in your grace. We thank you for the comfort of the gospel that is ours. And Lord, we pray that you will give us courage to drink from that spring of living water again and again so that we may have power to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. And all God's people say, Amen.